Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 263. My name is Douglas Wilson, and I'm glad you decided to join us. Uh, welcome aboard. Good job. So, what I'd like to talk about in this opening segment here today is the uh, the skirmish, the battle, the uh, controversy uh, in the House of Representatives just now concluded, as we're recording this, just now concluded, where um, Congressman McCarthy was finally elected as the Speaker of the House on the 15th ballot, which was a record. I think the previous record was something like nine ballots a long, long time ago. So this was 15 uh, ballots. Uh, This came about uh, because uh, the Republicans took the House, but they didn't take the House by this huge landslide uh, majority. They, They took the House sort of barely or barely and a little over, which meant that uh, about uh, 20 conservative Republican congressmen refused to vote for McCarthy as the Speaker of the House unless certain demands were uh, met. And those demands in themselves were reasonable. They They did this because McCarthy has been in Washington for a long time and knows his way around. He's a very capable uh, politician. And there may have been some personal scores to settle in this as well. It was, it was not just a matter of policy. There may have been some bad blood involved as well. But the upshot of it was actually very uh, good. Sort of a mainstream Republican is now the Speaker of the House. Some would say a rhino, a Republican in name only, is the Speaker of the House. But he has committed himself publicly to certain to certain things like a, a vote on term limits and a um, staffing of certain select committees with um, some hard, uh, hard conservative or hard right congressmen, uh, giving them more representation on certain influential committees and so on. Probably the biggest one, though, is um, an agreement that any one congressman can force a vote on uh, basically can force a vote of no confidence on the Speaker of the House. So basically, all these other deals that they've made, if uh, McCarthy welshes on the deal, if he goes back on the deal, if he double crosses anybody, then that one person, provided they're a representative in Congress, can force a vote of uh, no confidence on McCarthy, which given the, the current climate, he might not survive. So even though McCarthy is not a um, is not what you would call a true blue conservative, we are now in a position where he might be forced to act as though he, he were a true blue conservative, uh, because this um, the Freedom Caucus, the conservative Republicans, who frankly won this battle, uh, have him over a barrel. Uh, he really he as a matter of personal ambition. Uh, McCarthy really wanted to be Speaker of the House. That was something he really, really wanted. And uh, these conservatives were in the way. Uh, they they were in a position to block it. And because they were in a position to block it, 
they had the strong hand in the negotiations. There was quite a bit of lamenting about how this is the uh, the end of days, the end of our republic. The uh, you know there are a bunch of bad things that are going to come out of this, and uh, beca- because look at this chaos, look at this bad blood, look at all the. And it seemed to me that it was something that was actually uh, encouraging to see an actual clash of ideas, an actual an actual showdown where something actually might take shape in a different way other than business as uh, usual. So although it was uh, bumpy and bumptious and rambunctious and uh, not everybody's cup of tea, I think it was uh, all for the good. And it wouldn't have gone wouldn't have gone on indefinitely. I I read somewhere that the new Congress uh, couldn't be sworn in until until they had a Speaker of the House, and on top of that, nobody gets paid until they are sworn in, which would at some point have um, applied the pressure in the other direction. So this was all kind of um, kind of hard for certain sensitive souls to put up with, but it seemed to me to be simply uh, bare-knuckle politics in action where we could see it. I have no doubt that this sort of thing goes on all the time, and this was simply something that was done in the public eye. But the the upshot of it is, I think we should be pleased with uh, the outcome. Always will be God. As we continue with Plodcast, episode 263, uh, we have come to our section on sin. As you know, you are enrolled in a course that we are calling Hamartiology, the study of sin. Our word today is eponistemai, eponistemai, which means to rise up against, to rise up against. And there are two uses of this in the New Testament, and they come from parallel passages from two of the synoptics, uh, one in Matthew and the other one in Mark. So here is the Matthew passage. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. That's Matthew 10, 21. This is a filial rebellion, which is obviously a monstrous outrage. It is a result of the gospel dividing families. The children are so filled with hatred for the gospel that they are willing to vent that hatred out on their own parents. But in both passages, both in the Matthew passage and the Mark passage, we can see that this is an enmity that can run both ways, and also from side to side. Uh, the second uh, usage is um, from Mark thirteen, twelve. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up, there it is, against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. So in both passages, you have the lateral betrayal, brother against brother. You have the monstrosity of parents betraying their children, turning their children over to be executed. And then the crowning indignity is children rising up against their parents. Clearly, this kind of rebellion, this kind of rising up, this kind of uh, lack of filial piety is just a really grotesque sin, really bad. God don't never change. He's God. So as we continue with the podcast, episode 263, the book I want to talk about is Knowledge and Power by George Gilder. Knowledge and Power by George Gilder. 
Now, I thought it was possible that I had reviewed this book before, but I, a quick scan over my, my notes indicated that I haven't. But if you remember that I have, well, too bad. That these things happen sometimes. George Gilder, I, I don't talk a ton about him. I don't quote Gilder a lot, but he has been very influential in my, in my thinking uh, going uh, way back. He wrote a book called Sexual Suicide. I think he he wrote that book when he was not a Christian, and then later revised it to uh, a book called Men in Marriage. So it's basically a major upgrade of uh, sexual suicide. And uh, he hit the big time in uh, the 80s when he wrote his book, uh, Wealth and Poverty, which I read at the time, which was um, a book that Ronald Reagan uh, pushed and pushed hard. Uh, Reagan quoted all the time. Gilder started out as something of a liberal uh, Republican. There used to be a thing, maybe still is, I don't know, called the Ripon Society, and he was he was part of that sort of soft left Republican type of person. But he he gradually became more and more um, well conservative is the only word for it. More uh, oriented to f- to mar- free markets, and he, he but but he's he has done it in quite an eclectic. Uh, way. So, uh, George Gilder has had a profound Im- impact on issues swirling around feminism. He's also had a, uh, a big impact in the world of technology. One of his books is uh, Life After Google, and another book called Microcosm, and a book called Life After Television. Uh, he's, so- he's something of a futurist, and he's been able to predict a number of things uh, that were going to develop technologically before they actually happened. And so um, he's been very uh, prescient in that way. So in economics and technology and um, gender, se- sexual gender uh, issues, he's been very good. I read this book, Knowledge and Power. I read it a number of years ago, and it, it was strikingly good, just very good. Uh, there, there's a concluding section on the power of markets that either brought tears to my eyes or almost did. It, it was just really moving. It's, and, and this is one of the things that um, conservatives really need to recover, which is Gilder's ability to explain markets in a way that reveals what's actually going on, which is love and not greed. It's sacrifice and not greed. It's generosity and not greed. And uh, that's, that's how the uh, conclusion of knowledge and power uh, hit me the first time through. I'm looking forward to doing it again because I read, I, I read the book in hard copy before, and I'm listening to it now. And it's quite simply a fact that Gilder, um, well, let me say this before I use this cliche. People like to talk about thinking outside the box. And if anybody uses that phrase, thinking outside the box, it's a pretty good bet that they're a person who doesn't think outside the box. <laughs> the phrase thinking outside the box is a phrase that is much used inside the box. But if we strip away all the cliche connotations from the phrase, Gilder really is someone who is not afraid to challenge assumptions that that are d- uh, deeply held. Uh, in the section I'm in now, Knowledge and Power, he's questioning the second law of thermodynamics, for example. He's, he's questioning the, uh, the role that entropy 
has been assigned in the worldview of many. And that relates to another thing here. Gilder is one of the movers and shakers behind the Discovery Institute in Seattle. He was he had a formative role in the formation of that. Not sure exactly what it was, but he was a, a mover in the foundation of the Discovery Institute. And the Discovery Institute is sort of uh, one of the one of the prime locations for intelligent design work. So uh, Gilder is very good on information theory. He's very good on what constitutes design and how design works, how information flows, and so on. This book, well, I can't encapsulate it. I can't sum it up. But I can tell you that if you're at all interested in technology, if you're at all interested in the ramifications of technology and knowledge and information to the propagation of uh, the gospel, this is a very important book. I just really commend it heartily. I'd be willing to recommend all of Gilder's books, including the handful that I've not read. I've read a bunch, I've read a whole stack of them. But if you were going to if you were going to pick one book that if you only knew you had time to read one Gilder book, I'd recommend that this uh, be it. Knowledge and power. It's just stupendous. Really good. Don't waste a minute. Go get it now. That's what I say. Mm-hmm.